Hey friends, we know that you are desperate for season four of This is the Gospel to come back, and we are too, (laughs) but we need you to be patient with us just a little bit longer as we get all of our ducks in a row. It looks like we will be releasing season four in January, and for real this time, January. But in the meantime, we're going to bring you this bonus episode today, and then hopefully another one before Christmas to tide us over until season four drops. Hello, 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 my friends. We have missed you and we're so glad to bring you this bonus episode of This is the Gospel, an LDS Living podcast where we feature real stories from real people who are practicing and living their faith every day. I'm your host, Corinne Lay. You know, we've been gone for a while and I'm sure that some of you might have been wondering if we were ever coming back. And we promise, we promise that we'll tell you more of that story a little bit later in this episode. But the most important thing to know is that we're here, we're alive, and we're definitely not going to stop bringing you stories that help us to define and sometimes redefine what it looks like, what it feels like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But sometimes, sometimes you just have to embrace the chaos. And we're so grateful for your patience as we wait on the full season just a tiny bit longer. And in the meantime, we've got something cool for you today. I'm actually here. Well, not like here, here. We're digitally here together. I'm here with my co-producers, Katie and Erica. Hi, everyone. This is Erica. And this is Katie. We love being together. And a little while ago, I mean, we've been thinking this for a long time, but a little while ago, we decided that, you know, we're asking all of you to share your stories, to bring your broken hearts, your scraped knees, all your triumphs of faith to this podcast. And maybe the least we could do is show up to the party ourselves. So today, Katie, Erica, and I are each going to share a story. We're putting our own storytelling advice into practice as we explore what it looks like when we embrace the unexpected in our lives and allow God to show us the beauty in allowing things to happen in His time and in His way. Well, Erica, should we kick it off with your story? Yes. I'm nervous, but I'm excited. (laughs) Well, I love this story, and I'm excited for other people to hear it. So here you go. Take it away, Erica. I always get the window seat when I'm going on a flight because I love looking outside and I get pretty claustrophobic. So looking out the window helps me feel not so claustrophobic. It's very important who sits next to me because I like the window seat, but I also usually need to go to the bathroom quite a few times on a flight. And so I get to know them pretty well asking if I can climb over them so many times to go to the bathroom. This was a flight I was taking to Japan from Seattle. So it's, I don't even know, eight, 10 hours, maybe longer. I was a junior in college and I was on my way to Japan to do an internship there for a couple months. So I'm sitting there on the flight, my backpack's all tucked away. I'm feeling pretty good. Just really curious about who it's going to be and hoping that they're friendly. And this guy comes in, he's probably in his mid thirties or something. And right off the bat, I could tell that he was a very chatty guy. There's always the people that like just put on their headphones and they're not interested in any conversation. But he was like right off the bat asking me how many times I'd been to Japan, asking me where I was from. And I'm a bit of a brat when it comes to Japan because I'm half Japanese. I always like I've lived there growing up. I served my mission there. And so I've been there so many times. Anyway, so when he was asking me if it's my first time, I'm like, buddy, no, it's not my first time. I've spent half my life there. And so I was just chatting with him about it. He was really friendly. And it came up that I served my mission in Japan and he found out that I was a member of the church and he got really interested in that. He said it was his first time ever meeting someone from the church. He had seen the missionaries in different countries he traveled to before, but it was his first time actually talking to someone. So that led to lots of questions about the church. And as a pretty recently returned missionary, I was excited. So at first, the questions were really easy and fun to answer. Like, oh, missionary services for this long. And we also do this and teach English classes because I served my mission in Japan. And yeah, there's a lot of church members in Utah. And I did grow up around a lot of church members, you know, that kind of thing where it's pretty standard to ask. As the conversation kept going, it was getting hard to answer his questions because he would ask me more and more questions that were basically him just coming at things from a very different perspective. He wasn't very religious and he was particularly stuck on the fact that I was so young and had really 
invested myself in a religion this deep. And so I was getting pretty flustered and increasingly stressed about whether I was representing our church and our beliefs well to him. And not to mention, he was chatty. Like, this is a couple hours that we've been talking about this. And at first, I had like all the energy. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. But then by that time, I'm like, I'm tired. I kind of want to just watch a movie on this flight. It's a long flight and I'm trapped. I literally, like, I am in the window seat. I can't leave anywhere. It's not like you're at a cafe where you can just, I've got to go. I'm like sitting next to him for 10 hours. Anyways, there was one point where I just was like, I don't know, Heavenly Father, how to convey to this person what I believe. So we'd been talking so long at this point that the plane is like in distance mode where they turn off all the lights. Everyone's just watching their movies. It's quiet. They've already done all the meal services. I remember needing a break and I wanted to go to the bathroom. So I slipped past him walking through the dark plane and going into that tiny bathroom that's like kind of loud everywhere, you know, and I just remember praying really fervently and saying, Heavenly Father, I feel like this isn't a coincidence that I'm here. I believe that for whatever reason, I was meant to sit next to this man and to share with him my beliefs. I feel very inadequate to share those. I'm young. I still don't know a lot about the church. I don't know how to share it, but I know what I believe. So I say the prayer and I come back to my seat, renewed and ready to just try my best and hoping that like I'll have these strong promptings of what exactly to say and we might have a breakthrough moment and he would become a church member or something. And uh, spoiler alert, that did not happen. But I do remember the one question that just stays with me from this conversation is I remember him asking me, how do you believe in a God? Or like, what does it mean to you to believe in God? And I had a hard time answering. I was not very eloquent. And it was so hard for me to answer because it's so embedded in my life. I pray every morning and night. Every decision that I make, I seek guidance. Every time I'm stressed, I pray for help. It was just, it's so much a part of my everyday life that trying to convey this to him, it was so hard to communicate it to him because he just, he didn't have any experiences like that. It wasn't eloquent. It wasn't some crazy doctrinal thing that I was explaining super well. It was just me expressing my belief in God. And I felt peace while I was doing that. And I felt the truth of what I was saying to him. It was just a very calm and peaceful feeling for me to just share with him that I believed in God and what that meant to me. And, you know, after that last question, the conversation kind of petered out and we didn't have much conversation after that. And it ended there. And I, it's been three or four years and I don't even remember that man's name. Don't know what happened to him. But this was a big moment for me because I think I had worried for longer than I realized about a moment that might come up that would really be scrutinizing my faith and that maybe my faith and my beliefs wouldn't stand up to it. And I hadn't really had to stand up for it before because I had grown up in Utah for the most part. And then the years that I spent in Japan, I didn't really get a lot of questions about my faith. I was always nervous that that moment would come and that I didn't have enough or that I the foundation I had wasn't enough. and that some of those doubts I had of, oh, maybe I do just believe this because I've always lived in it and been in the environments that I have. Oh, maybe this is just something. Because a lot of people say that when you're missionaries, you know, they might be like, oh, it's all you've ever known, you young things. I got that on my mission. And so it was like, maybe that is the case. So I was worried about that. But this experience showed me that it wasn't, that I know what I know. And I believe, and it doesn't need to be this big, scary, huge moment. It doesn't need to be a huge conversion moment for the other person. It doesn't need to be me being scared and angry and defensive. It can just be me simply sharing that I believe in God, what that looks like to me. And it's not about all of the factual things that I know. What's important is my relationship with Heavenly Father. I know that Heavenly Father wants me to believe and wants me to know that that is enough. So that was Erica, obviously, because you're right here with us. But Erica, I just, I love your story. I Thanks, Katie. really resonated with it. I know that you had 
some doubts about sharing it because you didn't know if it would be relevant, but I just want you to know it was relevant to me. Thank you. Because <laughs> I have that same fear of like, if someone pushes back, am, is, am, is my testimony going to be strong enough? And I love that it was, that it wasn't what you knew. It was just your relationship with God was enough. And now I'm, I don't have to worry. Like if I have friends to leave the church or these different things, I'm not having to be like, oh, am I going to, are they going to like challenge my testimony? And I'm going to forget, like, am I going to forget everything I know? It's like, no, what I know is what I know. And I can be calm and confident and hear what other people think and hear their beliefs, you know? Without it feeling threatening. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to know, Erica, what was the hardest part about sharing your story? Oh my goodness. Everything. It's so hard because you think you know what you want to say, but then for some reason sitting in front of the microphone, like everything kind of goes blank. I've always been on the other end where people are telling their story to me and I'm listening and I'm like, okay, this is where it's going next. But for some reason, when I was on the other end, like it was like, where am I going with this? At what point should I mention this fact? Is it important <laughs> that this is mentioned earlier? All of it was kind of falling apart in my head because I don't know. It's just different being on the other side. I imagine that gives you so much empathy for the, so like, much. there are these times when we're recording storytellers and they come so prepared. So many of our storytellers have played this out in their minds and they've practiced. I joke about it. Like if anyone's ever seen the Brady Bunch, I joke that it's like that moment when Bobby Brady gets in front. Was it Bobby? I don't know. One of the Brady kids is on TV in a competition and the green light goes on and he freezes. Yeah, <laughs> That's the story. And he just can't like do it. And sometimes that happens with our storytellers too. And yeah. what you're describing is what they describe. You Definitely. have an idea. And also it's just... do. I I know I storytellers have said this and I'm always like, no, you have something so valuable to share, but it's so easy to feel like, but is this even interesting? Or like, is this, mm. is this valuable to people? And I was like, it's not a very neat story. Like, it's not like it all comes back together and it's a beautiful plot line and everything. It's like, it was just a little thing that happened to me. So it's hard to feel like it's enough to share, which again, storytellers have mentioned. And when I'm on the other side, I'm like, oh, that's not a problem at all. Like we want to hear from everyone, but it's different when you're on the other side. And some of my favorite stories we've told on this podcast are like the little ones, the ones that could happen to anyone. Sorry, I need to pull up the script. Was there anything else I was supposed to say? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I found it. So Erica, what's one thing that you would like to pass on to storytellers based on your experience? I want to say that it's okay if it's a process to get there. Because Katie was so patient when I was telling my story. Where I ended up going wasn't exactly where I knew it would go. I just knew this was a story that I wanted to tell and I felt prompted to tell it, but I didn't exactly know why. And I just want storytellers to know that when we're on the other end, we love working with you to get to where the story needs to be. And that's never a problem. It's a beautiful process. And this goes back to our theme today, which is to expect the unexpected. There may be times where I come into the booth, right? We don't have a booth. Who am I kidding? But I come into the <laughs> if we were fancy. <laughs> but I come into the room where the recording equipment is and I start to tell a story or I start to participate in a story and it's something isn't working and we can't figure out what it is. And then when we pray about it or if we stop sometimes to take a step back from it, the spirit can enter in those spaces. The spirit can come and make those spaces sacred. And then you get to the thing in the story that every single time was the thing that God wanted everybody to hear. And it's happened over and over and over again. Yeah. And I feel like, Corinne, you've done such a good job of teaching me that as well. And also that moment of when you feel it gets to that point. It's like, oh, this, this is where we needed to go today. <laughs> so if you're telling your story and you're feeling like it's still muddled, that's not a problem at all. Everyone's there at one point or another. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Okay, who's next? Katie, I think you're up. So I was 14 and I was sitting on an exam table with the crinkly paper and my mom was sitting in one of those like uncomfortable chairs next to me in those really small waiting rooms in the doctor's office. And we were waiting to hear back on a test to see if I had what's called rheumatoid arthritis which I didn't know what that meant at that time. Neither did my mom. We both thought it would come back negative and that the pain that was making my hands 
hurt so bad that I couldn't clench them into fists. And the pain that was making it so that I could barely walk around very well was just some kind of like muscle pain, I guess, is what we were thinking it was. Uh, But when the doctor came in, he looked right at me and he said, you have the RA factor or a type of marker in a blood test that tells you if you have rheumatoid arthritis or not. And I was kind of like, oh, that's weird. Previously, I thought that that was just a disease for old people and it meant that you snapped your fingers too much or something like that. Like I was like, I haven't snapped my fingers too much. I don't understand how I have arthritis in my hands and my feet. But then the doctor explained that it was an autoimmune disease, which means that your immune system basically is confused and it thinks that the things that make up your joints are bad. And so it starts attacking them and it makes them swollen and eventually it can erode away your joints, which is very serious. But as a 14-year-old, I didn't think it was. But we needed to see a rheumatologist to start medication on it. And he started talking to me about what this would look like in my life. He explained that because this was an autoimmune disease, I would not be cured of it at all. Like I would only be able to receive treatments for it that could make the pain less, but that the pain would grow more as I got older and that it would spread to different parts of my body. So I would get it eventually in my hips and my knees and my neck and other joints in my body and that I would be tired every day for the rest of my life. And it meant that I would get sick like I am right now, really easily for the rest of my life because my treatment involved suppressing my immune system. And it also meant that if I ever wanted to have kids, it would be a process because I'd have to get off of my medication and I would have to try to endure this like really intense pain that felt like sand was in between my joints or pieces of glass were in between my joints every time I moved them for however long I was pregnant and then however long until I could get back onto my medication after the baby was born. So that helped me understand the gravity of my situation as a 14-year-old. And what really hit home was when I had to give up being on the swim team, which I loved very much at the time. It was where all my friends were and I wasn't very good at all, but I just loved hanging out with people and exercising, but I was sick all the time and it was starting to really affect other areas of my life and make me even more tired than I had to be at the time. And so I had to give that up and it was really crushing for me. And then I needed to find a way to exercise that wasn't as intense so that I could stay healthier and not feel as tired. But there was one form of exercise that I was positive. I never, ever, ever wanted to get involved with, and that was running. As a child, I was pigeon-toed and a little chubby, and so the presidential fitness test that they made you do every year and they made you run a mile was the worst thing for me because I was always the last one out on the field because I was just huffing and puffing my way around the little schoolyard and it was so embarrassing and I hated it and so I really had bad experiences with running. But as I got older and graduated high school and went to college, I got really lucky And I started to feel better, which sometimes happens with autoimmune diseases without any explanation is sometimes it's just really bad and sometimes it's really good. And so I started to have a lot more energy and I started to feel like I could do a lot more things. I didn't live near a pool or else I'd go swimming. So I was like, well, maybe I'll just go outside and run because it's cheap and all I need is a pair of sneakers and I don't have to drive forever to find a pool. And so I started to slowly really like running and I also at the same time was getting better and better. So I thought maybe I should do a marathon. And that was like the most ridiculous idea that I could think of because I was like, whatever, I'm not a runner. I've never been graced with speed. I'll be lucky if I just finish it within 24 hours. But I just had this I don't know why. I just had this really big drive that I wanted to prove to people that I could do hard things even with my rheumatoid arthritis or RA and that I could beat this in a sense and that it didn't control my life. 
And then I kind of wanted to prove it to myself because I had for so long not been able to do things that I wanted to do to the extent that I wanted to do them because I was so tired all the time or I was in so much pain. And I really wanted to prove to myself that I could do this even if I was tired or even if I was in pain and that I could do it in a healthy way. And then I would just kind of run around the streets of my neighborhood, which was hard sometimes because, you know, some days there was a lot of pain. I look at my training schedule and I'd have to run five miles and I could barely walk. And I thought, well, how am I going to run five miles if I can barely walk? I just always, before I would start on a run, just say a little prayer that I would be able to make it through the training so that I could run this marathon. And it was so dumb in the grand scheme of things. Like when you're praying for something that you're praying that you can hurt yourself so you can hurt yourself more later on in the future. And I was like, this is dumb. I'm sorry. I'm praying about this. I'm wasting your time probably. But I always got the feeling that it was okay to pray about that and that Heavenly Father actually really cared about why I was praying about it. So I followed the training plan the best I could. There were some days that I missed and some days that I didn't complete all of the run. So I was a little nervous on race day and I had prayed the whole night before that I would just be able to finish it and that I'd be able to run the entire thing. That was so important for me because the marathon is 26.2 miles and I didn't want to walk any of it, which is ridiculous for anyone who's listening, who's run a marathon before. Of course, you can walk part of a marathon, but for some reason in my mind, success meant that I would just run the whole thing, even if I had to run it slow. And so I began this race and as the miles ticked by, it started to get harder and harder and I started to get more and more nervous that I wouldn't be able to run the whole thing. But I got my second wind at about mile 20 and I was feeling really good because that meant that I only had six miles left. And so I was like nearing the end. And as I was on this road running with other runners, I turned a corner and I looked up and I saw that the last six miles were going to be just hills all the way. So it was going to be the hardest part of the race in these six miles. That energy that I felt from my second wind just went out the window and I was so demoralized. And I remember running next to this guy and I would just pulled out my earphones and I just yelled, this is ridiculous. Why are there six miles of hills left? And he just kind of gave me this look like you're a crazy lady. And I'm like, I know. And I just ran past him because I was so mad. I was so emotional at this point that I just decided that I was going to put my head down and just do the best I could. And so I did. And I got through the next three miles. But as I was nearing the 23 mile marker where they had a little like porta potty set up for you, I knew that I was pretty much done. So I go into this porta potty. It was awful because at this point it was afternoon. So it was a little hot inside the porta potty. It was a little smelly inside the porta potty. And it was just even more demoralizing to be in there, just knowing that I had three miles left and that I had nothing left in the tank. I had given everything I had on those three miles. And the only options that I had left were to either walk the rest of the way, which was so sad to me because I'd really wanted to run it. Or I could quit this marathon, which meant that I would have to talk to the people who were at this aid station next to the porta potty and I'd have to tell them that I was withdrawing and then I'd have to call my parents and have them come pick me up and I wouldn't get a finisher's medal. I wouldn't get that feeling of like completion that I'd done it, that all that training was for, wasn't for nothing. And it was just so heartbreaking to make a choice between those two. And so I decided I was going to pray. And in the prayer, I was just like, pouring my heart out. And I was like, I know that this is not important in the grand scheme of things. I know that I brought this pain upon myself, but I really, really, really want to finish this. You know that this is important to me. As I stepped out of the porta potty and was trying to decide if I was going to quit or just walk, I just had this thought come in my brain so clearly that I can take it from here. And I could just feel like throughout my whole body that that was my Heavenly Father talking to me, that that wasn't my own voice, that that wasn't my own thought. And I also knew that when the voice said, I've got this, that meant that Heavenly Father had this and that it wasn't me and that I could turn everything over to Him from this point on and that He would take care of it. And so I just started jogging, (laughs) lightly jogging. (laughs) 
And then I was able to pick it, the pace up from there to a run. It was really brutal the last three miles because it wasn't just the muscle pain and the fatigue and all of the other things that you feel when you're going through a marathon. It was also like joint pain. So my knees were done. My hips were done. My feet were done. Everything, every part of my body that could be done was done. But I just kept going because I felt supported. I felt like it would be okay. And I knew that even though I had nothing left to give, that Heavenly Father was going to make up the difference for me. As I crossed the finish line, I just <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> Literally, I think I broke the screen on my phone because I just checked it. I was so tired. But it felt amazing to be done with that race. And I just was lying on the grass and my family was like all around me like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just really, really tired. <laughs> just really hurt all over. And uh, I was just like, couldn't get over that experience and how Heavenly Father had really come through in the last three miles and made up that difference for me, even though it was just a marathon. It was just something that I had signed up for to bring pain upon myself, but he still cared about it and he still cared about me. And he was going to show me that by bringing me to the finish line. So after that race, I just came to know my Heavenly Father on a level that I hadn't before. I'd gone through hard things before and I knew that He was there with me, but actually having Him answer me in the time when I needed Him, right when I needed Him, helped show me how present He is in my life. And actually, funny story, I recently ran another marathon and I only got to mile 20 and I had to quit and not finish that race. But... I still snuck to the finish line to get the finisher's medal because I believe that if you run 20 miles, you deserve a medal. But I, it was okay because I knew that Heavenly Father had my back and that He would make up the difference for anything that I couldn't control. So even though I haven't been healed of rheumatoid arthritis, and even though I have to deal with the symptoms every day of having pain in my joints occasionally and also being tired and sick, I know that it's going to be okay. So when I die... I go up to heaven with my finisher's medal that I stole. I think he's going to be okay with it. <laughs> Katie, I am so glad you shared that story for two reasons. One, both of our stories today, both your story and Erica's story, involve praying in a toilet. And I think it's really important that we point that out. I didn't even I didn't realize, realize that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a gift for making connections. So it's really important that you both know that your stories, the pinnacle of your stories are both of you going into a bathroom to say a prayer to our Father in Heaven, which is an excellent reminder for all of us that any place can become a sacred place when you need it to be. <laughs> I love that connection so much. You're, oh my god. You're welcome. You're welcome. And then the second thing that I think is really interesting about both of your stories that I don't think we knew because I hadn't heard them before today is they both testify of the capacity of our Savior and of our Father in Heaven to take what we can offer and to make it enough. It's enough for you to develop your relationship, Erica, with our Father in Heaven and he will make it work for whatever it is. He'll take the weak things and make them strong. And then Katie, it's enough for you to put one foot forward and to semi-finish a, a marathon and he will make it enough because he's got the end result, right? Like it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to take away from people who finish marathons cuz that's amazing. <laughs> and you did finish one of them, right? But yeah. there's something really powerful about being reminded that ultimately the trying is is enough. Okay, so Katie, I have some questions for you about the process of telling a story. Which is easier, running a marathon or telling a story on the This is the Gospel podcast? Oh, after this, I'd have to say running a marathon. <laughs> so much easier. What was the hardest thing for you? What was the thing that caused you the most anxiety or nervousness? I think it was being willing to be vulnerable mm. and make it personal. That was really hard for me because yeah. I didn't realize how automatic it is to put up a shield and be like, well, I mm -hmm. never have any problems and I'm totally fine <laughs> with my life. But that wouldn't be a good story. There wouldn't be any struggle there. There yeah. wouldn't be anything to overcome or any risks at stake. So 
I think that's an important part is being willing to get to the vulnerable spaces you need to go to. Um, Erica, you're shaking your head vigorously. Is that something that you experience too? Yeah, definitely. When I'm producing stories, I love when people are vulnerable. I love when they go there because I'm automatically thinking of how many people can connect to this, how many people can learn to this, how I'm connecting to that. But when I'm telling the story, like Katie was saying, it's just not in my instinct to go there. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I need to share the things that I've learned because I'm insecure about my story. So I'm just going to talk about what I learned. But it's like, no, I need to go to those places because that's how we can really connect. And I actually think that vulnerability, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to reveal yourself in new ways, right? We, we kind of are comfortable with the vulnerabilities that we're comfortable with. But when we have to try something new, it's, it's really scary. And I'm so glad you persevered and pushed through it. One more way. One more way that you're conquering one step at a time. So maybe another question that I have, because I know you, Katie, and I know that you are a, you are a woman who is deeply reliant on the spirit. How did you prepare spiritually to either identify the story to tell or to actually record? Lots of prayer. I call it head prayers because it's prayers I don't say out loud. I just say them in my head. <laughs> <laughs> was, your, was your prayer in the toilet a head prayer or an out loud oh. prayer? It was the head prayer because there were people right outside. (laughs) Just making sure. Could you imagine if there were a bunch of marathoners running by your porta potty and they just heard this like loud, like praying, praying to the Lord? (laughs) Maybe next time you guys could try that when you're praying in toilets. Okay. So you prayed a lot, Katie. Did anything change for you between the time that you prayed and the time that you came ready to tell the story? Yeah. Let me see if I can articulate it because I'm horrible at expressing my feelings. It made me understand the importance of pondering and thinking things through, which I think is an important part of storytelling is being able to ponder it and think about how it applies to you on such a spiritual level, especially for this is the gospel. And just praying that it would be the story that that should be. I don't know. That's a weird prayer. I always pray is like, just let it be the prayer or let it be the story that it should be. I love that so much, Katie, because it takes it out of our hands a little. And it says, Heavenly Father, we're showing up. We have something we think could be useful to others or even to ourselves. Make it what it can be. And he does. He absolutely does. He did with your story. It is what it should have been. And it was exactly what we needed. So thank you. Thanks, Corinne. All right, Corinne. I think it's your turn now. Okay, here we go. I am a planner. I have been my whole life. I love lists. I love creating experiences for people that help them to feel something. And I'm very interested in making sure that when I plan an experience, (laughs) that everybody gets what they came for. A few years ago, I joined a group of really amazing women to mentor a family who had just arrived to the United States from a refugee camp in Uganda, where they had spent the last 17 years of their lives. And it was a really, really cool experience to be a part of their new adventure here in the United States. One of the things that I loved about being a mentor to this family was being able to introduce them to new things in this new country. Like they arrived really close to Halloween. So it was very fun to try to explain that there would be people dressed up knocking on their doors, asking for candy and um, that that they should be aware that that was going to happen to them. And so of course, living here in Utah, I thought, oh, well, the next coolest thing that Utah has to offer is something called Pioneer Day. Pioneer Day is just this huge celebration of the pioneers coming into the Salt Lake Valley for the first time with Brigham Young. And and they have parades and there are rodeos and all kinds of things to celebrate this uh, bank holiday on the 24th of July. So I told our family that they needed to come and see the Pioneer Day Parade. And of course, this was pre-COVID, so people were still gathering. We made a plan. We, we'd meet at a train station, which was a central location, my family and their family, and, and then all go on the train together downtown to watch the parade. The parade started at nine and I had a plan in my head. We would meet at 830 
on the train line and then hop on and we'd be at the parade route by 9.30 at the latest and we'd get to see everything there was to see. Well, 8.30 came and went and my cute friends were nowhere to be found. We were having a hard time getting a hold of them to find out what, what was happening. And eventually they did answer their phone and we found out that they had taken the train to the wrong stop and they got off on a totally different train line on a different stop. And so we determined, my husband and I determined that we would all get into our little Subaru, <laughs> our little Subaru cross truck. And, and in order to save time, we would, at, at this point, we were about a half an hour behind schedule. And we decided the fastest and easiest thing to do would be just to get in our little car and go to where our friends were because it was too hard to try to explain which train line they needed to take to come and meet us. So we determined we'd just hop in our car. We put our two kids in the back and went and got our friends. And uh, it was kind of like a clown car. We just piled as many people in as we could. It was totally not kosher there were very few seatbelts involved, um, but everyone kind of piled in. And then we quickly drove from that train station to the correct train station to get on the right line. And at this point, now it's about 45 minutes out of schedule. And I'm I'm realizing like, okay, we we may not make it to the parade. So we get on the train, we head downtown, we get off at the correct stop and we start walking. We're just walking, walking, walking so fast. And I think there were children, like the family had lots of kids. And I think the youngest ones were kind of like trailing behind us, like, please slow down. Why is this lady making us walk so quickly? It's the middle of July. So it's starting to get really hot outside. And I'm kind of whiny about the heat. And we forgot to bring sunscreen and didn't remember to bring any water because even though I'm a planner, I didn't think that this would be quite as um, as intense as it was. We were really, really huffing it to try to get to the parade route. And it was further away from the train stop than I thought. So all of my plans are sort of crumbling around me. And we get to the parade route just in time to see the very last two floats go by. One sad little float and then maybe a police car. And I realized that we have absolutely missed the Pioneer Day Parade. But I happen to remember that the parade route ends at a park, which wasn't terribly far away. So I think in my head, okay, the next best thing we can do is try to get to the park in time to see some of the floats that maybe they're still there and that we'll still get to kind of have this experience together of seeing what's magical about Pioneer Day in Utah. So we start walking again. And I'm really wishing at this point that I had a Fitbit because I think we probably walked as many miles as I've walked when I lived in big cities. And I don't know if we were just moving really slowly because we had to stop and get some waters and we had little kids and they needed to go to the bathroom and there were things happening. But by the time we got to the park, it was over. All of the floats, all of the bands, everybody is gone. And I was mortified. I was so sad and so embarrassed and so kind of angry. Like, why did this, why did this all go like this? This wasn't how this was supposed to go. So in defeat, we decided that we're going to make the best of the day. And there happened to be a sort of fair in the middle of the park. They had set up some tents and there were people selling necklaces and bracelets and there was some food there. And so we all kind of, at this point, were starving. We had finally gotten some water, but we were all really hungry. So we decided to kind of cut our losses, hang out at the park, go and get some food, see if we could salvage some part of the day. And of course, my friends were just the most delightful. And even though things were not going really well, they were having a good time and we were getting to know each other better. And really, sometimes that's the point of all of this, right? So everybody's kind of deciding what they want to go eat. Some of us want Indian food. Some of us want Mexican food. Everybody wants something different. So we sort of divide and conquer. And as we're standing in line, and I, I can't even remember what we went to eat. And again, I'm feeling just this sort of absolute defeat. Like I have, I have failed at planning this adventure and they will never know what pioneer day is. And it's so tragic. And I'm kind of licking my wounds and a little bit bugged and we're standing in line. And all of a sudden the girls that I'm with turn and their eyes light up and they scream a name. They scream a name out loud. And as soon as they say it, this other girl comes running up and she grabs them and they hug. When our family 
and I call them our family because they really are like my family. When our family came from Uganda, they were traveling with a teenage girl who was, for all intents and purposes, a part of their family. But in the United States, when you come over from another country as a refugee, if you are an unaccompanied minor or somebody who does not have biological family here in the United States you are put into a foster family when you arrive. And because this girl was not biologically related to them, they were separated and she was put into foster care. And because of the complexity of coming to a new country and not having phone numbers and not having a way to get to the internet very easily and all of the things that come with that, they'd lost contact. And it just so happened that that day, at that very moment, That friend was also at the park with thousands of other people there getting food right when our girls were there so that they found each other. You can tell me that it was coincidence. You can say that. But I know, I know that all of my good planning that day, well, I don't know if it was good planning. I did forget the water. But all of the things that were supposed to happen that day in my mind, the parade, the excitement, all of the kind of cultural exchange that was supposed to happen that day was secondary to God's plan for us, which was to be in the right place at the right time so that those girls could be reunited with their long lost friend, somebody who knew them from home and could strengthen them in this experience of being new in a new country. And it was really clear to me in that moment (laughs) that sometimes our best plans need to be subverted so that God's better plan can come to fruition. I don't know what was happening for that sweet girl that had been taken from everything that she knew and put in a new country with a foster family. And I certainly don't know the inner workings of the family that I was mentoring and loving, but I know that God knew and he knew what they needed. And it was a miracle that day in that park. And I'm so grateful that we missed the parade, that the only solution I could come up with was to walk 4,000 miles over to a park to see if the floats were still there because we didn't find floats. We found friendship and we found reconnection. Corinne, you have a gift for storytelling. I see it every day and I'm just so (laughs) impressed. I have a question though. Because you said you often get tied to like, this is how it should be, or like, this is the timeline that I'm thinking. Why do you think we get attached to those, whether it's fun things like a parade or bigger things in our life? I think we get attached to timelines because, (laughs) I mean, we're all looking to try to make sense of the world around us. And one of the ways that we can make sense is through patterns. And I think that predictability and pattern finding is a human We want to be able to see the future in some way. And that's one of the only ways we can see the future is by having a plan and having a vision. It's almost like a false sense of security. (laughs) Like if we can plan this just right, then we can see the future and we don't have to be afraid of whatever is coming. I've had to really work on that in my life to allow the stories to unfold. Like Katie said earlier, like to allow the stories to unfold the way they should instead of the way I think they should. To be what they can be instead of what I think they can be. And I think this story that I told is a perfect example of that. I know they have the five stages of grief. Is it five? I think it's five. Do you feel like there's the five stages of processing when things don't go according to plan? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's definitely some things I go through every single time. Yeah. And sometimes it's, sometimes it happens in like a minute. You go through all five of those in (laughs) in one minute where you're like, we're melting, we're melting. But what I love about that, Erica, about that question, I know you were joking about it and you were kind of like, ha ha ha. But what I love about that question is that a good storyteller always comes to the story at the end. When things don't go as planned, if you start to see your life as a story unfolding, you'll start to embrace the unexpected. Mm -hmm. And you start to look at your life and say, I kind of hope stuff doesn't go exactly as planned because then I'm going to have a good story after this is over. I think that's one way that we can sort of open ourselves up to what God has in store for us. But just because we know that, does it make it easy? (laughs) No. (laughs) 
Not even close. Okay, so I'll end my story with another story that I think will help. Um, I promised at the beginning that I that we would explain the uh, the holdup with season four. There has definitely been some unexpected and stages of grief and all the things that we've talked about today in why that exists. So I, in 2021, was feeling really strongly that I needed to listen to President Nelson's conference talk, Let God Prevail, on repeat. I probably listened to it five times in the car on my way somewhere. And I've never done that before. That's like a really weird thing to do. I was like, there is something in this that I have to internalize. I don't know what it is, but I need I need to listen to this over and over and over again. And then in January, as I was trying to think of my New Year's resolutions, you know, we'd just been through a pandemic and I was like, I'm not going to set anything too terribly <laughs> ambitious for myself. So instead, I came up with this idea that I wanted to have just a theme for the year. And immediately, President Nelson's words from that talk, from his 2021 October talk, Let God Prevail, was, are you willing to, are you willing, oh, what are the words? Sorry, I'm going to look this up really That's quickly. That's okay. I have it here. Do you have are it? You- what does it say? I never get the words just right. Are you willing to let God prevail in your life? Are you, you, italicized, are you willing to let God be the most important influence in your life? Will you allow his words, his commandments, and his covenants to influence what you do each day? Will you allow his voice to take priority over any other? Are you willing to let whatever he needs you to do take precedence over every other ambition? Are you willing to have your will swallowed up in his? That's it. That's the thing. So as I'm thinking about my theme for the year, the words willing to offer my every ambition came to my heart. And I'm a really ambitious person. Mm -hmm. So I've struggled with that throughout my life, thinking that I'm failing or that I'm not meeting the measure of my creation or something. I'm sure there are other people who can relate to that. But I decided that that was the key to whatever this next year had in store for me was this willingness to offer my every ambition. So I put it on one of those adorable little, what are those, the boards with the white letters and the black it's a letter board. Yeah. Yeah. So I put it on a letter board and I hung it up in my office. Wouldn't you know it? Shortly after I did that, I was approached about a position at the church, at church headquarters. And I decided that I would take the call, even though I wasn't sure <laughs> I wasn't sure I wanted it <laughs> or that it was the right fit for me. And the next Sunday was fast Sunday and I sure ate breakfast that morning because I was not interested in, (laughs) I can't be the only one that does this, right? (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) I was like, no thanks, no answers for me today. So I'll be having, I'll be having eggs on fast Sunday. So I, (laughs) I tried my best to ignore the promptings, but the more I talked to people, the more I prayed about it, the more I allowed, um, the more I allowed President Nelson's words to echo in my heart, the more I realized that that I had to take the opportunity to work at church headquarters. It's a very different job than the one I was doing at Deseret Book and with LDS Living. And that was hard. That was hard because I have found so much joy in the work that I do and the work that I've done at LDS Living and at Deseret Book, but I knew it and my husband knew it and <laughs> and I even think some of my friends knew it. It was time for me to take the new opportunity. And so here we are. I no longer work at LDS Living. They've graciously allowed me to continue to be a part of This is the Gospel for this season, for season four, and I am just going to miss it so much. So those are the moments, right? The times when we have to embrace the unexpected. That's what I'm trying to do. It's not easy. But if we let God tell our story, I think that's what President Nelson was trying to tell all of us, is that if we're willing to let God prevail in our lives, let Him be the author of our story. It will all work out in the end, and um, we'll have beautiful stories to tell someday.
So stick with us. We've got a whole season ahead of us. We're going to be back in January, ready to rock and roll. And until then, just know we adore you. We love you. We're so grateful for this opportunity to to share these stories. And that is it for this bonus episode of This is the Gospel. And I just want to thank everyone again for your patience as we embrace all of these unexpected things that come up in our lives. And I also want to take this time really quickly to say a huge shout out, a huge thank you to Sarah Blake for the years of undying devotion to the This is the Gospel podcast. She's been my right-hand friend for many years, and especially over the last three as we've developed and built this podcast. She is an integral part of what makes This is the Gospel, This is the Gospel. And while she won't be joining us this season, her spirit lives on. (laughs) So Sarah, we couldn't have done it without you. And we'll be back with at least one more bonus episode in the next few months, but season four will happen at the beginning of 2022. You can learn more about our storytellers in our show notes at ldsliving.com slash this is the gospel. Hey, those storytellers are us. All of the stories in this episode are true and accurate as affirmed by us, your storytellers. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear it. You can call and pitch your story on our pitch line at 515-519-6179. And while you're waiting for season four to drop, stay connected with us by following us on Facebook or Instagram at this is the gospel underscore podcast to know when these bonus episodes will be available. We'll also share themes we're looking for and additional content as well as updates on season four. This is usually where we'd ask you to leave us a review, but we actually want your help with something different this time. We put together a survey to see what it is that you really love about the podcast and what we can do to improve. So if you have a second, we'll put a link in our show notes and on social. And if you could take that survey for us, it shouldn't take too long. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you still want to leave us a review, we always appreciate those. You can leave us a review on Apple, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen on. They help more people find the podcast. This episode was produced by me, Corinne Lay. And me, Erica Free. And me, Katie Lambert. It was scored, mixed, and mastered by Mix It 6 Studios, and our executive producer is Aaron Hallstrom. You can find past episodes, all 77 of them, of this podcast and other LDS Living podcasts at ldsliving.com slash podcasts. Talk to you soon.